Thomas Nagel, what it's like to be a bat. Consciousness is what makes the mind-body problem really intractable. Perhaps that is why current discussions of the problem give it little attention or get it obviously wrong. The recent wave of reductionist euphoria has produced several analyses of mental phenomena and mental concepts designed to explain the possibility of some variety of materialism, psychophysical identification, or reduction. But the problems dealt with are those common to this type of reduction and other types, and what makes a mind-body problem unique. And unlike the water H2O problem or the Turing machine, IBM machine problem or the lightning electrical discharge problem or the gene DNA problem or the oak tree hydrocarbon problem is ignored. Every reductionist has his favorite analogy from modern science. It is most unlikely that any of these unrelated examples of successful reduction will shed light on the relation of mind to brain. But philosophers share the general human weakness for explanations of what is incomprehensible in terms suited for what is familiar and well understood, though entirely different. This has led to the acceptance of implausible accounts of the mental largely because they would permit familiar kinds of reduction. I shall try to explain why, why the usual examples do not help us to understand the relation between mind and body. Indeed, why we have at present no conception of what an explanation of the physical nature of mental phenomenon would be. Without consciousness, the mind-body problem would be much less interesting. With consciousness, it seems hopeless. The most important and characteristic feature of conscious mental phenomena is very poorly understood. Most reductionist theories do not even try to explain it. And careful examination will show that no currently available concept of reduction is applicable to it. Perhaps a new theoretical form can be devised for the purpose, but such a, such a solution, if it exists, lies in the distant intellectual future. Conscious experience is a widespread phenomenon. It occurs at many levels of animal life. Though we cannot be sure of its presence in the simpler organisms, and it is very difficult to say, in general, what provides evidence of it. Some extremists have been prepared to deny it even of mammals other than man. No doubt it occurs in countless forms totally unimaginable to us on other planets in other solar systems throughout the universe. But no matter how the form may vary, the fact that an organism has conscious experience at all means basically that there is something it is like to be that organism. There may be further implications about the form of the experience. There may even, though I doubt it, be implications about the behavior of the organism. But fundamentally, an organism has conscious mental states if and only if there is something that it is like to be that organism. 
something it is like for that organism. We may call this the subjective character of experience. It is not captured by any of the familiar, recently devised, reductive analyses of mental, for all of them are logically incompatible with its absence. It is not analyzable in terms of any explanatory system of functional states or intentional states, since these could be ascribed to robots or automata that behave like people though they experience nothing. It is not analyzable in terms of the causal role of experiences in relation to typical behavior for similar reasons. I do not deny that conscious mental states and events cause behavior, nor that they may be given functional characterizations. I deny only that this kind of thing exhausts their analyses. Any reductionist program has to be based on an analysis of what is to be reduced. If the analysis leaves something out, the problem will be falsely posed. It is useless to base the defense of materialism on any analysis of mental phenomena that fails to deal explicitly with their subjective character. For there is no reason to suppose that a reduction which seems plausible when no attempt is made to account for consciousness can be extended to include consciousness. Without some idea, therefore, of what the subjective character of experience is, we cannot know what is required of a physicalist theory. While an account of the physical basis of mind must explain many things, this appears to be the most difficult. It is impossible to exclude the phenomenological features of experience from a reduction in the same way that one excludes the phenomenal features of an ordinary substance from a physical or chemical reduction of it, namely by explaining them as effects on the minds of human observers. If physicalism is to be defended, the phenomenological features must themselves be given a physical account. But when we examine their subjective character, it seems that such a result is impossible. The reason is that every subjective phenomenon is essentially connected with a single point of view, and it seems inevitable that an objective physical theory will abandon that point of view. Let me first try to state the issue somewhat more fully than by referring to the relation between the subjective and the objective, or between the porsoi and the ensoi. This is far from easy. Facts about what it is like to be an X are very peculiar, so peculiar that some may be inclined to doubt their reality or the significance of claims about them. To illustrate the connection between subjectivity and a point of view, and to make evident the importance of subjective features, it will help to explore the matter in relation to an example that brings out clearly the divergence between the two types of conception, subjective and objective. I assume we all believe that bats have experience. 
After all, they are mammals, and there is no more doubt that they have experience than that mice or pigeons or whales have experience. I have chosen bats instead of wasps or flounders because if one travels too far down the phylogenetic tree, people gradually shed their faith that there is experience there at all. Bats, although more closely related to us than other species, nevertheless present a range of activity and a sensory apparatus so different from ours that the problem I want to pose is exceptionally vivid, though it certainly could be raised with other species. Even without the benefit of philosophical reflection, anyone who has spent some time in an enclosed space with an excited bat knows what it is to encounter a fundamentally alien form of life. I have said that the essence of the belief that bats have experience is that there is something that it is like to be a bat. Now, we know that most bats, the microchiropetra, to be precise, perceive the external world primarily by sonar or echolocation, detecting the reflections from objects within range of their own rapid, subtly modulated high-frequency shrieks. Their brains are designed to correlate the outgoing impulses with subsequent echoes, and the information thus acquired enables bats to make precise discriminations of distance, size, shape, motion, and texture comparable to those we make by vision. But bat sonar, though clearly a form of perception, is not similar in its operation to any sense that we possess, and there is no reason to suppose that it is subjectively like anything we can experience or imagine. This appears to create difficulties for the notion of what it is like to be a bat. We must consider whether any method will permit us to extrapolate to the inner life of the bat from our own case, and if not, what alternative methods there may be for understanding the notion. Our own experience provides the basic material for our imagination, whose range is therefore limited. It will not help to try to imagine that one has webbing on one's arms, which enables one to fly around at dusk and dawn catching insects in one's mouth that one has very poor vision and perceives the surrounding world by a system of reflected high-frequency sound signals, and that one spends the day hanging upside down by one's feet in an attic. Insofar as I can imagine this, which is not very far, it tells me only what it is like to, for me to behave as a bat behaves. But that is not the question. I want to know what it is like for a bat to be a bat. Yet if I try to imagine this, I am restricted to the resources of my own mind, and those resources are inadequate to the task. I cannot perform it either by imagining additions to my present experience, or by imagining segments gradually subtracted from it, or by imagining some combination of additions, subtractions, and modifications. To the extent that I could look and behave like a wasp or a bat without changing my fundamental structure, my experiences would not be anything like the experiences of those animals.
On the other hand, it is doubtful that any meaning can be attached to the supposition that I should possess the internal neurophysiological constitution of a bat. Even if I could, by gradual degrees, be transformed into a bat, nothing in my present constitution enables me to imagine what the experiences of such a future stage of myself, thus metamorphosized, would be like. The best evidence would come from the experiences of bats, if we only knew what they were like. So if extrapolation from our own case is involved in the idea of what it is like to be a bat, the extrapolation must be incomplete. We cannot form more than a schematic conception of what it is like. For example, we may ascribe general types of experience on the basis of the animal structure and behaviour. Thus, we describe bat sonar as a form of three-dimensional forward perception. We believe that bats feel some versions of pain, fear, hunger and lust, and that they have other, more familiar types of perception besides sonar. But we believe these experiences also have, in each case, a specific subjective character, which it is beyond our ability to conceive. And if there is conscious life elsewhere in the universe, it is likely that some form of it will not be describable even in the most general experiential terms available to us. The problem is not confined to exotic cases, however, for it exists between one person and another. The subjective character of experience of a person deaf and blind from birth is not accessible to me, for example, nor presumably is mine to him. This does not prevent us each from believing that the other's experience has a subjective character. If anyone is inclined to deny that we can believe in the existence of facts like this, whose exact nature we cannot possibly conceive, he should reflect that in contemplating the bats, we are in much the same position that intelligent bats or Martians would occupy if they tried to form a conception of what it was like to be us. The structure of their own minds might make it impossible for them to succeed, but we know they would be wrong to conclude that there is not anything precise that it is like to be us. That only certain general types of mental state could be ascribed to us. Perhaps perception and appetite would be concepts common to us both, perhaps not. We know they would be wrong to draw such a sceptical conclusion because we know what it is like to be us. And we know that while it includes an enormous amount of variation and complexity, and while we do not possess the vocabulary to describe it adequately, its subjective character is highly specific, and in some respects describable in terms that can be understood only by creatures like us. The fact that we cannot expect ever to accommodate in our language a detailed description of Martian or bat phenomenology should not lead us to dismiss as meaningless the claim that bats and Martians have experiences fully comparable in richness of detail to our own.
It would be fine if someone would develop concepts and a theory that enabled us to think about those things, but such an understanding may be permanently denied to us by the limits of our nature. And to deny the reality or logical significance of what we can never describe or understand is the crudest form of cognitive dissonance. This brings us to the edge of a topic that requires much more discussion than I can give it here. Namely, the relation between facts on the one hand and conceptual schemes or systems of representation on the other. My realism about the subjective domain in all its forms implies a belief in the existence of facts beyond the human, the reach of human concepts. Certainly, it is possible for a human being to believe that there are facts which humans will never possess and the requisite concepts to represent or comprehend them. Indeed, it would be foolish to doubt this, given the finiteness of humanity's expectations. After all, there would have been transfinite numbers, even if everyone had been wiped out by the Black Death before Cantor discovered them. But one might also believe that there are facts which could not ever be represented or comprehended by human beings even if the species lasted forever, simply because our structure does not permit us to operate with concepts of the requisite type. This impossibility might even be observed by other beings, but it is not clear that the existence of such beings or the possibility of their existence is a precondition of the significance of the hypothesis that there are humanly inaccessible facts. After all, the nature of beings with access to humanly inaccessible facts is presumably itself a humanly inaccessible fact. Reflection on what it is like to be a bat seems to lead us, therefore, to the conclusion that there are facts that do not consist in the truth of propositions expressible in human language. We can be compelled to recognise the existence of such facts without being able to state or to comprehend them. I shall not pursue this subject, however. Its bearing on the topic before us, namely the mind-body problem, is that it enabled us to make a general observation about the subjective character of experience. Whatever may be the status of facts about what it is like to be a human being or a bat or a Martian, these appear to be facts that embody a particular point of view. I am not adverting here to the alleged privacy of experience to its possessor. The point of view in question is not one accessible only to a single individual. Rather, it is a type. It is often possible to take up a point of view other than one's own, so the comprehension of such facts is not limited to one's own case. There is a sense in which phenomenological facts are perfectly objective. One person can know or say of another what the quality of the other's experience is. They are subjective, however, in the sense that even this objective ascription of experience is possible only for someone sufficiently similar to the object of ascription to be able to adopt his point of view. To understand the ascription in the first place, as well as in the third person, so to speak. 
The more different from oneself the other experiencer is, the less success one can expect with this enterprise. In our own case, we occupy the relevant point of view, but we will have as much difficulty understanding our own experience properly if we approach it from another point of view as we would if we tried to understand the experience of another species without taking up its point of view. This bears directly on the mind-body problem. For if the facts of experience... Facts about what it is like for the experiencing organism are accessible only from one point of view, then it's a mystery how the true character of experiences could be revealed in the physical operation of that organism. The latter domain is a domain of objective facts par excellence, the kind that can be observed and understood from many points of view and by individuals with differing perceptual systems. There are no comparable imaginative obstacles to the acquisition of knowledge about bat neurophysiology by human scientists, and intelligent bats or Martians might learn about the human brain than we ever will. This is not by itself an argument against reduction. A Martian scientist with no understanding of visual perception could understand the rainbow or lightning or clouds as physical phenomena, though he would never be able to understand the human concepts of rainbow, lightning or cloud or the place these things occupy in our phenomenal world. The objective nature of the things picked out by these concepts could be apprehended by him because, although the concepts themselves are connected with a particular point of view and a particular visual phenomenology, the things apprehended from that point of view are not. They are observable from the point of view but external to it. Hence, they can be comprehended from other points of view also, either by the same organisms or by others. Lightning has an objective character that is not exhausted by its visual appearance, and this can be investigated by a Martian without vision. To be precise, it has a more objective character than is revealed in its visual appearance. In speaking of the move from subjective to objective characterization, I wish to remain non-committal about the existence of an endpoint, the completely objective intrinsic nature of the thing, which might or might not be able to reach. It may be more accurate to think of objectivity as a direction in which the understanding can travel. And in understanding a phenomenon like lightning, it is legitimate to go as far away as one can from a strictly human viewpoint. In the case of experience, on the other hand, the connection with a particular point of view seems much closer. It's difficult to understand what could be meant by the objective character of experience, apart from the particular point of view from which its subjects apprehends it. After all, what would be left of what it is like to be a bat if one removed the viewpoint of the bat? 
But if experience does not have, in addition to its subjective character, an objective nature that can be apprehended from many different points of view, then how can it be supposed that a Martian investigating my brain might be observing physical processes which were my mental processes, as he might observe physical processes which were bolts of lightning, only from a different point of view? How, for that matter, could a human physiologist observe them from another point of view? We appear to be faced with a general difficulty around psychophysical reduction. In other areas of the process of reduction is a move in the direction of greater objectivity, towards a more accurate view of the real nature of things. This is accomplished by reducing our dependence on individual or species-specific points of view toward the object of investigation. We describe it not in terms of the impressions it makes on our senses, but in terms of its more general effects and the, of properties detectable by means other than human senses. The less it depends on a specifically human viewpoint, the more objective is our description. It is possible to follow this path because although the concepts and ideas we employ in thinking about external world are initially applied from a point of view that involves our personal apparatus, they are used by us to refer to things beyond themselves, towards which we have the phenomenal point of view. Therefore, we can abandon it in favour of another, and still be thinking of the same things. Experience itself, however, does not seem to fit this pattern. The idea of moving from appearance to reality seems to make no sense here. What is the analogue in this case to pursuing a more objective understanding of the same phenomena by abandoning the initial subjective viewpoint toward them in favour of another that is more objective but concerns the same thing. Certainly it appears unlikely that we will ever get closer to the real nature of human experience by leaving behind the particularity of our human point of view and striving for a description in terms of accessible to beings that could not imagine what it's like to be us. If the subjective character of experience is fully comprehensible only from one point of view, then to shift to greater objectivity, that is, less attachment to a specific viewpoint, does not take us nearer to the real nature of the phenomenon. It takes us farther away from it. In a sense, the seeds of this objection to the reducibility of experience are already detectable in successful cases of reduction. For in discovering sound to be, in reality, a wave phenomenon in air or other media, we leave behind one viewpoint to take up another, and the auditory, human or animal viewpoint that we leave behind remains unreduced. Members of radically different species may both understand the same physical events in objective terms, and this does not require that they understand the phenomenal forms in which those events appear to the senses of members of other species. Thus, it is a condition of their referring to a common reality 
that their more particular viewpoints are not part of the common reality that they both apprehend. The reduction can only succeed if the species-specific viewpoint is omitted from what is to be reduced. But while we are right to leave this point of view aside in seeking a fuller understanding of the external world, we cannot ignore it permanently, since it's the essence of the internal world and not merely a point of view on it. Most of the neo-behaviorism of recent philosophical psychology results from the effort to substitute an objective concept of mind for the real thing, in order to have nothing left over which cannot be reduced. If we acknowledge that a physical theory of mind must account for the subjective character of experience, we must admit that no presently available conception gives us a clue how this could be done. The problem is unique. If mental processes are indeed physical processes, then there is something it is like, intrinsically, to undergo certain physical processes. What it is for such a thing to be the case remains a mystery. What moral should be drawn from these reflections, and what should be done next? It would be a mistake to conclude that physicalism must be false. Nothing is proved by the inadequacy of physicalist hypotheses that assume a faulty objective analysis of mind. It would be truer to say that physicalism is in a position we cannot understand because we do not at present have any conception of how it might be true. Perhaps it will be thought unreasonable to require such a conception as a condition of understanding. After all, it might be said, the meaning of physicalism is clear enough. Mental states are states of the body. Mental events are physical events. We do not know which physical states and events they are, but that should not prevent us from understanding the hypothesis. What could be clearer than the words is and are? But I believe it is precisely this apparent clarity of the word is that is deceptive. Usually, when we are told that X is Y, we know how it is supposed to be true. But that depends on a conceptual or theoretical background and is not conveyed by the is alone. We know how both X and Y refer, and the kinds of things to which they refer, and we have a rough idea how the two referential paths might converge on a single thing be it an object, a person, a process, an event, or whatever. But when the two terms of identification are very disparate, it may not be so clear how it could be true. We may not have even a rough idea of how the two referential paths could converge, or what kinds of things they might converge on. And a theoretical framework may have to be supplied to enable us to understand this. Without the framework, an air of mysticism surrounds the identification. This explains the magical flavour of popular presentations of fundamental scientific discoveries, given out as propositions to which one must subscribe without really understanding them. For example, people are now told at an early age that all matter is really energy. 
But despite the fact that they know what is means, most of them never form a conception of what makes this claim true because they lack the theoretical background. At the present time, the status of physicalism is similar to that which the hypotheses that matter is energy would have had if uttered by a pre-Socratic philosopher. We do not have the beginnings of a conception of how it might be true. In order to understand the hypothesis that a mental event is a physical event, we require more than an understanding of the word is. The idea of how a mental and a physical term might refer to the same thing is lacking, and the usual analogies with theoretical identification in other fields fail to supply it. They fail because if we construe the reference of mental terms to physical events on the usual model, we either get a reappearance of separate subjective events as the effects through which mental reference to a physical event is secured, or else we get a false account of how mental terms refer, for example, a causal behaviorist one. Strangely enough, we may have evidence for the truth of something we cannot really understand. Suppose a caterpillar is locked in a sterile safe by someone unfamiliar with insect metamorphosis, and weeks later the safe is reopened, revealing a butterfly. If the person knows that the safe has been shut the whole time, he has reason to believe that the butterfly is, or once was, the caterpillar, without having any idea in the sense this might be so. One possibility is that the caterpillar contained a tiny winged parasite that devoured it and grew into a butterfly. It is conceivable that we are in such a position with regard to physicalism. Donald Davidson has argued that if mental events have physical causes and effects, they must have physical descriptions. He holds that we could have reason to believe this, even though we do not, and in fact could not, have a general psychophysical theory. His argument applies to intentional mental events, but I think we also have some reason to believe that sensations are physical processes without being in a position to understand how. Davidson's position is that certain physical events have irreducibly mental properties and perhaps some view describable in this way is correct, but nothing of which we can now form a conception corresponds to it nor have we any idea what a theory would be like that enabled us to conceive of it. Very little work has been done on the basic question, from which mention of the brain can be entirely omitted, whether any sense can be made of experiences having objective character at all. Does it make sense, in other words, to ask what my experiences are really like, as opposed to how they appear to me? We cannot genuinely understand the hypothesis that their nature is captured in the physical description unless we understand the more fundamental idea that they have an objective nature, or that objective processes can have a subjective nature. I should like to close with a speculative proposal. It may be possible to approach the gap between subjective and objective from another direction.
Setting aside temporality in relation between the mind and the brain, we can pursue a more objective understanding of the mental in its own right. At present, we are completely unequipped to think about the subjective character of experience without relying on the imagination, without taking up the point of view of the experiential subject. This should be regarded as a challenge to form new concepts and devise a new method, an objective phenomenology not dependent on empathy or the imagination. Though presumably it would not capture everything, its goal would be to describe, at least in part, the subjective character of experiences in a form comprehensible to beings incapable of having those experiences. We would have to develop such a phenomenology to describe the sonar experiences of bats, but it would also be possible to begin with humans. One might try, for example, to develop concepts that could be used to explain to a person blind from birth what it was like to see. One would reach a blank wall eventually, but it should be possible to devise a method of expressing in objective terms much more than we can at present, and with much greater precision. The loose intermodal analogies, for example, red is like the sound of a trumpet, which crop up in discussions of this subject are of little use. That should be clear to anyone who has both heard a trumpet and seen red. But structural features of perception might be more accessible to objective description, even though something would be left out. And concepts alternative to those we learn in the first person may enable us to arrive at a kind of understanding even of our ex own experience, which is denied us by the very ease of description and lack of distance that the subjective concepts afford. Apart from its own interests, a phenomenology that is in this sense objective may permit questions about the physical basis of experience to assume a more intelligible form. Aspects of subjective experience that admitted this kind of objective description might be better candidates for objective explanations of a more familiar sort. But whether or not this guess is correct, it seems unlikely that any physical theory of mind can be contemplated until more thought has been given to the general problem of subjective and objective. Otherwise, we cannot even pose the mind-body problem without sidestepping it.